Good evening, um, everybody, and welcome. For those of you who are not from the LSE, welcome to the London School of Economics. My name is Ricky Burdett, and I'm the director of the Urban Age program at the LSE, and have been involved in the Cities program for uh, over 10 years, in fact, now. Uh, a project which you'll hear, in fact, started with the, the involvement, in fact, uh, was kickstarted by a grant, and a significant grant, from the over Arab Foundation. Uh, my role tonight is to just uh, moderate what uh, I'm sure will be a, a very important uh, talk by Peter Head, who um, has been uh, very much at the forefront of thinking and practice in the field of sustainable design. I'll come to introducing him in a moment, but because today is a very important day, I think, for us here at the LSE, it, we're starting a new series of lectures uh, and a new um, involvement, renewed involvement, with the Ober Arab Foundation. Um, we have the chair of the Ober Arab Foundation, Richard Harriot, who is just going to say a few words as a way of introduction, effectively, to the series of talks uh, and uh, some of the joint um, enterprises we're doing. And then I will come back and uh, introduce Peter uh, before he gives his main speech. Uh, the whole evening will end by around 10 to 8, uh, Peter's talk will last around 50 minutes, and uh, there is an opportunity for questions and uh, comments uh, from the floor. So, uh, Richard, can I ask you to come to the back? Well, good evening. Um, it's a particular pleasure uh, for me to have the chance on behalf of the trustees of the Ovarup Foundation to say a few words and in introduce uh, this important lecture series. We much welcome it uh, and what it will undoubtedly contribute to the research, the teaching uh, and the policy making that will flow from it in the LSE Cities program, the wider LSE and way beyond it. I think it would be helpful if I uh, set out our support for the LSE Cities Programme in a wider context. Uh, we, that's the foundation, were instrumental uh, in its birth. We were, uh, as I say, instrumental, and we remain committed to supporting it and helping it develop. The Ovarup Foundation itself uh, was set up following uh, the death of Sir Ovarup, the firm's founder. Uh, he died in 1988 at the age of 92. And the then directors of the firm decided would it would be very nice to honor his name and reputation by setting up a charitable trust uh, to promote knowledge and education in the built environment with a, an emphasis on the interdisciplinary nature of design. And so our interest in the LSE was sparked by a conversation over dinner uh, between the then director of the LSE, uh, Sir John Ashworth, uh, about 1996, uh, between Sir John and uh, Sir Philip Dowson, then president of the Royal Academy and himself a trustee of the Ovarup Foundation. Sir John said that the LSE 
was interested in introducing town planning and urban affairs and so on into the LSE. Uh, it's an area of huge, huge importance to the wealth and well-being of the whole of us in every nation. It's arguably the most important area in a world of growing population and urbanization. The whole complex issues of, of acquiring new knowledge across many disciplines and the ability to apply that knowledge, which of course is at the heart of design, uh, is absolutely crucial. And to apply it in a way that husbands resources, releases human energy and creativity and so on, is absolutely vital. It's an area that is far too important, and this may sound odd, it's far too important to be left to town planners architects, engineers, in silos. Yeah. <laughs> it really has to be interdisciplinary. Uh, and it needs those disciplines and many more. It needs those architects, engineers, planners, economists, social scientists, food experts, energy experts, infrastructure managers, in all the whole of that, absolutely vital. Uh, and so, Sir John Ashworth's interest was of interest to us. As it happens, uh, the first ideas that the LSE had didn't appeal to us very much. I'm not sure if you knew that, Ricky, but uh, they didn't appeal to us very much. Uh, no one knows that better than Sir Jack Zuntz, who's sitting there, the then chairman of the trustees of the Obarak Foundation. Uh, uh, he... he and the other trustees and the LSE, like good designers, were able to get together and fashion something from that idea into what has happened today. Uh, so the result has been uh, teaching that covers all of those areas and stresses the importance of infrastructure tackling resource depletion and all those sorts of things. And I'm sure we'll be hearing about more of that later. And so began our support to the LSE. It's been the Foundation's biggest single donation. We've been involved in others in this field. We've given money uh, to Cape Town University for their Centre uh, for Cities in Africa. Uh, to the IDBE at Cambridge, a master's degree there in interdisciplinary design for the built environment, and in others. But this one happens to be uh, of huge importance to us and to, I suggest, the world at large. Uh, alumni from the course now uh, operate in positions all over the world. They all say that the LSE course change the way they think and apply knowledge. It's crucial. And the LSE itself, of course, has added to its intellectual horsepower through this exercise. And so we're committed now to further support to the course directors uh, and to the LSE at large uh, in helping them to develop the course. And, of course, uh, we are 
sponsoring this important lecture series. Now, the, this lecture series uh, is uh, one of a series of public lectures, and I think that's very important. That appeals to us. It reaches out beyond uh, a closed community into uh, policymakers and so on all over. Uh, it'll bring key issues of sustainable cities to that wider public audience uh, and develop academic thought generally. There will be a series of three lectures. The first, uh, uh, tonight's lecture by Peter Head. Uh, Ricky said he will introduce Peter uh, shortly. Um, I know Peter well, so I'll leave that to you to introduce him. Peter is quite clear that the work of the LSE's cities program has been instrumental, fundamental, built in building blocks for his work, and you will hear about that later. It's absolutely fundamental. The alumni from this course, as I say, uh, are absolutely terrific. The second lecture is a dynamic city maker, the uh, New York City Department of Transportation Commissioner Jeanette Sidi Khan, the woman behind the dramatic changes in New York's street scene and the green light for Midtown, part pedestrianization of Times Square. And the third, uh, later next, uh, sometime next year, hopefully, will be uh, the insp an inspirational mayor in Yeregard. I hope I pronounced that correctly. She's the mayor of Copenhagen, and she's playing host to the United Nations Climate Change Conference to be held in Copenhagen this December, where I think some 50 mayors from all over the world are meeting to discuss these issues. It's absolutely brilliant. And so hosting these lectures here, the LSE, which is in a leading position to do this, as I say, with its intellectual horsepower, uh, it should be really thrilling. Uh, we know that it is committed to this way of thinking. So for us, it's a huge pleasure to be supporting the series. Thank you, Ricky. Thank you, Ricky. Thank you for that. Fran Tonkis, who is the director of the Cities Program, and myself are obviously delighted that uh, this is an ongoing relationship and it started all that time ago. Um, we're interested in one thing ultimately, whether it's teaching or outreach, and it's the link between the social world and the physical world. That's the core subject that we're interested in. And I think what Peter Head has been doing, coming from a very strong, tough background as an engineer, won, won so many awards I can't list them, in bridge design. Uh, he has that discipline uh, as an engineer to take new thinking to bear in how you make rigorous uh, models of new sustainable cities. And without going, Peter, if you don't mind, into your uh, OBs and all the other things to do with your bridge design, I'm just going to put that aside. Uh, I think what is important for us is the work that he's done in uh, Arabs, in the engineering firm, in developing literally new ways of designing cities in China and Dongtang and Wangzhang. Uh, these, the word eco-city actually didn't exist until you guys came up with that. Now, one of them hasn't been built, and maybe the other one uh, won't be. But it's become uh, the sort of model, the touchstone, uh, by which we all sort of um, have a robust debate of what these cities uh, should be like. 
so robust that some of us even don't think we should have eco-cities. We should only work in city centers, but I'm sure that will come again. Peter's um, approach has been uh, rewarded not just at the engineering level, but at a political level, hence the in intersections in this series between politicians, city makers, and, um, uh, and designers. And it's been rewarded by the Mayor of London by asking Peter to actually join in 2002, so Ken Livingston, uh, the London Sustainable Development Commission, he's an independent commissioner on that. But I think in terms of the issues that Richard has just mentioned about the big picture, the big challenges that face the world today, uh, you can't think about uh, dealing with the world's environmental crisis without thinking about cities. Uh, this was not obvious three or four years ago. It really wasn't obvious. Even the discussion about uh, carbon reduction didn't really take the physical fabric into account. And the fact that he's the chair, he's an advisor to the chairman of the C40, the very influential group of large cities, is uh, very important. And also advisor to the climate leadership group of the Clinton Carbon Positive Program. So Peter is someone who's moved from the designing of things, of important things which link one side of a piece of water to another, to designing cities which link all the disciplines that you've discussed. So will you join me in welcoming to the LSE as the first over Arab Foundation lecture, Peter Head. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's a great pleasure, it's a great honor to actually to be invited to give this first inaugural lecture in this series. And I hope I can do it justice. And actually I've got some pretty exciting news and, and information to give to you. Uh, I couldn't really have uh, stood here today if I hadn't been on a journey around the world for the last three years uh, trying to figure out some answers to some very critical questions that the world is currently uh, looking at. I was asked by the Institution of Civil Engineers, so my roots in engineering, I was asked by them to give something called the Brunel Lecture Series. I could choose the subject, and it would take place over two years, which happened to be the two years leading up to December of this year, which is the Copenhagen Climate Summit. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to actually write a detailed, learned paper, a peer-reviewed paper, to try and answer these three questions, well actually the first two particularly, is it possible for nine and a half billion people to live sustainably on the planet uh, in 2050? And if it is, what policies and investments are needed in low, middle and high income countries, and particularly cities, to make that happen? And in terms of tonight, what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize and focus on the role of urban technology in cities and particularly their role in relation to the economic performance of cities. But of course there are many, many other facets that were studied. I've now given this presentation in 20 countries. I've done it 30 times in 30 cities. And each time I did it, I tailored it to the particular characteristics and, and challenges that each country is facing. So tonight I'm going to give you the feedback from that tour and show you the videos at the end which summarize the view of how you do this, or some views of how you do this, but I'm going to lead up to that by presenting stories and other things. How is it that Arif and I are able to stand here and talk to you? The reason for this is that the Arif, Arif is owned by a trust, and Arif puts a very significant proportion of its uh, profit every year into research and development. 
And part of that research and development is to do things like drivers for change and other things that have been researched all over the world. And that provided, <coughs> provided me with a, uh, a material research base for my work. So when you're working in Arup, you have access to this very rich uh, empirical evidence base to actually take the analysis forward. And, and that is one of the reasons why I'm able to do this. So the first thing to say is that we now know from uh, many parts of the evidence base that this model of cities, this very um, traditional industrial-based model which served society extremely well to raise social and economic conditions all around the world is now not working for us because these cities actually create a dependence on fossil fuel um, energy and a dependence on a very, uh, well, it creates a very wasteful lifestyle because we haven't designed these cities to enable people to use resources efficiently. And we now know that we're heading to, to, into some pretty choppy water in relation to all those issues. And you know the Independent Panel for Climate Change has now estimated that there is a 50% probability of a five degree rise in Earth temperature by 2100 um, however you think that might be caused, that, that is the trajectory we're on. And one of the only interventions that is being discussed to really tackle that is reducing emissions into the atmosphere. But of course we also know that there are other big issues. And therefore in my analysis of how to go forward, I thought it was really, really important not to just focus on reducing carbon emissions because of all the other issues we're facing. And the other big issue is that as population on the Earth has grown, the amount of land available to support everyone's life on the planet has gone in 100 years from about 8 hectares on average of useful land down to only 2 hectares. And by 2050, you can easily calculate that with, uh, when we go up to 9.5 billion people, it's down to about 1.5 hectares. And our life in cities, as you'll see in a minute, is such that it's consuming far more resources than we have available on the planet. And therefore we have to find a different way of living, which means retrofitting existing cities uh, that have, have been developed on the industrial model and developing with a new paradigm in developing countries uh, to actually achieve the outcomes that will be sustainable. Here are some examples of ecological footprint calculations for cities around the world. I'm sure many of you are probably familiar with them. But I want to focus down on the bottom here where uh, you can see the average ecological footprint in China is about 1.6 hectares per person, which you'll remember from the last slide is less than the current average earth share of two. So currently, despite what you see in Shanghai and Beijing, on average across China, China is only consuming about 1.6 hectares of land to support life. Now that footprint is growing at 3% a year because of urbanization. All the materials, all the new energy supplies, all the new coal, all the things that are needed to create life in the new cities that are being built all over China is growing that footprint at 3%. That calculation yields a, an, a land area of 93 million hectares of new land China has to find every year to support urbanization. So China is in trying to buy up Rio Tinto mines in Australia without success. And that sort of tells you that this model isn't working anymore because China can't find enough resources at the right prices to do this. 
So China is out there ahead of all of us, realising that this is an unsustainable direction and self-interest to some extent is dictating the fact that China's got to look for new paradigms of urban development that consume much less resources, it needs to retrofit its existing cities and it needs to protect the environment as well in order to achieve the outcomes it needs. It sees this as an economic argument, uh, principally, and one based on self-interest. Another important issue in China is the fact that the land isn't just used for urbanization, it's used for food production. And China has, is teetering on the edge of having to import food for the first time. And therefore, it's balancing this very tricky issue of having enough land available to grow food as well as urbanizing. And therefore, it's struggling with that balance and as I'll show you later, that's another critical issue in the urban forms that are relevant to that problem. I have to talk economics for a minute because I couldn't give this presentation around the world without addressing the economic issues. I am fairly clear in my mind that the current or the industrial model of GDP driving uh, our decision-making and policy-making is defunct. It no longer works because it's driving an ever-increasing consumption of non-renewable resources, which we use wastefully. There is very little incentive to, to be efficient when your GDP driver says the more stuff you consume, the better off you are economically. So I do believe we're in transition now to a different economic model. President Sarkozy's Nobel laureate group have a certain view about that, which I personally think was rather slanted towards... Um, uh, saying that, um, that, that France's economy looks rather good against this, this metric. But in principle, I, I think the, the if I show this, um, this sequence again, I think basically what we're, what we're looking at now is an economic model in which we go from using non-renewable resources wastefully to using renewable resources efficiently, which means now as the econ economy grows, the ecosystem has a chance to recover because we're no longer polluting it and we're, we're recycling materials and resources and using renewable energy. We have to find a new way of measuring that economically in order to uh, fashion cities and fashion national economies. So in everything I now talk about, I'm talking about low ecological footprint as well as low carbon uh, in terms of going forward. Now. From a policy perspective, and this is the last time I'm going to talk about policies, uh, but I could spend a lot of time talking about them, there are three different levels of policy that are needed to drive a transition from that one economic model to another. The first one is that we have to value natural capital. Uh, in other words, we have to value the destruction of the ecosystem, which in the end supports our lives. And the high carbon price is the first mechanics that hopefully will emerge from the Copenhagen discussions that will enable us to start valuing the destruction that's being caused by, uh, by carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That's the first step. Also, the valuing of rainforests and their contribution will maybe another. So that's the first level of policy that really has to go in place to make this work. The second is we do have to ensure that there are a fair distribution of resources to both poor people and rich people. We want these new cities, we want society in an ecological age, as I call it, uh, to have a fair distribution of resources. So it's not just for rich people, it's for, it, it looks after poor people too. Pension funds, employee-owned share schemes, 
ways of investing using public-private community partnerships all seem to now be coming on the agenda in order to drive that particular outcome. And then finally, we have to find a market mechanism, because this is still a market-based uh, economy, where efficiency is driven by the market, the efficiency of using renewables, and energy feed-in legislation, which hopefully at last the UK government's going to get round to putting in place, 55, I think, other countries have now put it in place to, to dramatically increase renewable energy um, uh, production. That is one example of many, many measures that can be put in place at a policy level to actually make this happen. Those things have to be done by national governments, really. Uh, but now I'm going to come on and talk about what cities can do. So here's my rather engineering-driven, as Ricky said, um, equation of what I define as the ecological age. It is basically the average reduction of carbon dioxide emissions by 50% across the world from 1990 levels. That was agreed at the Japan conference in 2008 by the G8 ministers, and that is still the basis of what they're trying to struggle towards in Copenhagen. But in Copenhagen, as far as emissions reduction and capping is concerned, obviously divvying that up between different countries around the world is, is the great challenge. Um, and I can... In, maybe in questions I can give you a lot more information about that negotiation. Secondly, driving ourselves towards an ecological footprint of about one and a half hectares per capita and governments and cities around the world are now beginning to set those targets too and in London there's a new report about to be published to say how London can achieve that reduction in footprint uh, and, and I commend that report to you because it's one of the first ones that will ever be produced. And then the great news about this is that human development can then accelerate. The great news here is that if we reach that level of efficiency, there'll be a lot more money available to actually lift human development. And now I want to tell you a story, because that may sound far-fetched. So let me tell you a story that some of you may have heard before, which is about a community in Bangladesh, right out in the delta in Bangladesh, people living in villages without any services and, and support. And the one thing they want for their children is education. That's the one thing that will lift that family from where it is to somewhere better. So somebody says, I'm going to build a boat, and I'm going to float this boat to your village, and I'll, I'll, I'll put some school desks on here with a canopy over the top, and I'll provide some education for your kids. And this person said, wouldn't it be great if I put photovoltaic panels on the top of the canopy, and I could put some laptops on here and let the kids learn how to use laptops? But how do I get that paid for? What's the business model for this, and suddenly realized that if he bought some battery-powered lamps, put them on the edge of the deck, powered them up from the photovoltaic panels, and then when he went to the village, he said, I will lease you these uh, battery-powered lamps if you give me the money you're spending on the kerosene for your lighting in your village. And kerosene isn't subsidized in Bangladesh, so the amount of money that he got from that was enough to pay for this service, moving from village to village every, every day. And the great thing about this story is that this worked so well that there are now something like, I think, nearly 200 of these boats now bringing education to 300,000 children in Bangladesh on the back of that model. So when people in Arab say to me photovoltaic panels are too expensive to put into buildings, I tell them this story and said, you really do have to think pretty fundamentally about the value of converting sunlight into low-carbon living, low-ecological footprint, and then lifting human development. This story is, if you, if you take that message and put it into a modern, wasteful city, just imagine what you could do.
The other thing we have to worry about is not just mitigating carbon dioxide emissions on the last equation, but also adapting to the impact of climate change. And here we come to a really deep ethical issue because those countries that have, that have put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which is accelerating climate change, uh, are not the ones that are going to suffer. Um, and indeed, this, this uh, image shows you in green, shows you the number of people that are going to be affected by climate change impacts around the world uh, in green com compared with in brown. And brown are, are, are mostly the polluters who've created the problem in the first place. So there is a deep ethical issue here at Copenhagen as to whether the developed world is going to help fund the adaptation to climate change that it actually produced. Gordon Brown has announced uh, the idea of creating a fund of $100 billion a year to go into an adaptation fund, but as yet one of the big sticking points in negotiation is making that money available. So everything I'm going to talk about in cities is adapting to climate change impacts, particularly in the developing world, as well as responding to the resource efficiency needs. Now, frameworks are really important because clearly this is a massive transition from an industrial model to an ecological model or from an agricultural model to an ecological model. And you need some sort of framework to drive the difference between the two. We still have the social economic issues, but in terms of resource management and the natural world, we need a framework. And I've been using the biomimicry framework that was set out by Janine Benyus in her wonderful book because I think it's really, really helpful as a, as a set of uh, conditions that most natural organisms on the planet that have really been successful adopt these principles because they found they work. We don't adopt any of them, and, and therefore I think that gives you some idea of the problems we're facing. So if you apply these principles to the transition in cities, they can be really helpful. So I'm going to use this in terms of talking about a few stories. Now, another thing we've learned in the process of going forward and design is we've now coined this phrase smart, responsive simplicity as being a sort of design condition that we're aiming for. Now, I think you understand what smart means. It means some level of intelligence which can then move on to being responsive, to respond, to be flexible, adaptable. Cities aren't designed. They evolve. They, 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 they just happen but you've got to have some measure of responsiveness within the infrastructure you put in to enable that to happen. But most importantly, they've got to be simple. And by simple, we mean that you collapse down the fossil fuel fixes that we have in cities. And one of the most dramatic examples of that is, is making a transition from noisy, polluting vehicles to quiet, clean vehicles, because then you don't have to keep the noise and pollution out of buildings which means you can have ventilation scenarios for buildings which are absolutely entirely different. Now, when I first started giving this talk, and when I said these things and I said this, this is going to be a real design issue, I never imagined that this weekend Angela Merkel would have announced that two million electric cars are going to be on the roads in Germany by 2020. This has really accelerated uh, very quickly, and I'll explain why in a minute. So this is, that type of idea is really important. Now, here's another story. When I went to Japan, I couldn't understand why uh, Japan's carbon emissions have risen since 1990 by that much, um, almost by sort of over 10%, nearly 12%, I think. Why is it when Japan has improved its resource um, intensity, that's the amount of resources that flow through the Japanese economy, have gone down by 40% in the last 10 years? So why is it that Japan's 
um, energy consumption and emissions are going up, and that's due to their life in cities. And then I realized it's because of this feedback effect. Because if you have more and more resource-efficient stuff in a city, you tend to say, wow, you know, I can have more laptops, I can have more televisions and stuff because they're really efficient. And what's happening in Japan is the classic feedback effect, which means that they're not recognizing that in addition to technological change, you've got to have cultural change. You've got to have an understanding that you have to live differently. It isn't just a technological fix. It's a cultural issue. And when I made that presentation in Japan, uh, I got feedback afterwards that said, I think you said something very profound. But then I said, do you realize what goes with that is you're doing smart, responsive complexity. You're not doing smart, responsive simplicity. You haven't recognized that there is a collapsing down opportunity within the way you plan and design cities. And, and everyone in, in Japan said, yeah, you're right. Actually, you're right when you start thinking about what we're doing. So actually, that was a, a really interesting and fairly um, good opportunity to start thinking differently about the way Japanese cities work. Now, diversity and cooperation. This is the social dimension of the way cities work. And I've been making a very strong point, which comes out of United Nations research, that if we're going to get this cultural change that we need, you really have to reach back into the cultural roots of human civilization in order to understand it, because in the roots of most of our civilizations and cultures is the idea of sustainable development within Taoism, within Confucianism, within Sikhism, uh, within Buddhism. Many, many philosophies have this. So when I went to Africa, I said, I think it's really important to reach into the roots of tribal culture in Africa in order to learn how a new paradigm of living in cities could happen, how a new paradigm of eco-cities or sustainable cities could happen. And I got contacted by a professor from the University in Pretoria who was a professor of ecological economics. And he said to me, do you realize that in the Cambrian period of the Earth's history, we have researched and found evidence that because this was the first place on the planet that human beings actually lived, there is evidence that the huge explosion in biodiversity and large mammals in Africa was related to the presence of human beings or the presence of people who stood on two legs and started to change what went on around them. He said there is evidence when you compare it with other regions of the world that there is a connection there. So he said what you're saying is actually very profound because actually we can learn that we can actually reverse this destruction of biodiversity and if we learn from those roots we can actually create explosions of biodiversity uh, by those means. And we know that it's possible by managing carbon in soils, by managing water and so on. So again, there is an optimistic side to that story which I'm going to come to in cities and the way they work with the environment. So then we come on to the real nitty-gritty of energy, of resource efficiency, uh, and using local resources. So here, basically, we're talking about food, raw materials, energy, and water. And so I'm going to briefly dwell on them. Now, this graph is really, really important in the energy sense because this graph is the history of the world in, mostly in cities, really, in terms of the energy consumption per capita uh, as GDP in every country in the world has actually grown. And you can see that Australia is actually the... Um, Australia is, is this red line here. Australia and the US have mastered the art of maximising this sort of energy consumption per capita, and that's simply related to urban density. That's simply related to a large amount of transport energy and urban density. 
Now, as I've been around the world and, and analysed this, I've discovered a very simple and obvious fact that if you work out the number of people per square kilometre in every country, uh, that immediately affects the sprawling of cities. Very not surprisingly, because land uses are related to the pressure of living. And so in Australia and, um, and the US, you've got 30 or 40 people per square kilometre in livable areas of the US, compared with the EU and Japan, where you've got 350. It's a factor of 10 different. So it perhaps isn't all that surprising that cities have evolved because of land prices that, that actually uh, uh, have more public transport, less dependence on cars in the EU and Japan, which is why that's different. Now, the big issue, of course, is what happens in the, uh, in the developing countries, which are still at this point in the development cycle. Do they go up here, or do they develop city models to go here, or do they develop city models to go over here? Now, China has worked this out, and, and China is now embarking on that line. It's aiming to go somewhere where nobody has ever been before, and this is the energy intensity line that China's following. Every region in China has an energy intensity target that takes the whole country along that line, as well as a GDP target. And here's another bit of news, that we gather that after the Copenhagen Climate Summit, every region in China is also going to have a carbon emissions target uh, alongside those other two targets, which is also interesting. Now, when I went to Hong Kong, uh, I did the analysis of Hong Kong, and what I discovered was that if you take Hong Kong's GDP, it's exactly there. Hong Kong is exactly on the line that China is aiming to go along in terms of energy efficiency or energy intensity. So when I did the presentation in Hong Kong, I said actually Hong Kong is now the eco-city demonstrator that, that China's looking for. And everyone got quite excited actually about this idea. And of course if, if Hong Kong then retrofits its buildings and improves them, if it captures carbon dioxide from its coal-fired power plants and it gets energy from waste, Hong Kong could then be the most uh, sustainable low-carbon city that the world's ever seen, uh, as long as it starts to sell goods and services, which are also uh, of that same characteristic. So that was another uh, uh, very important um, discovery. And this is the, the classic graph that I'm sure you've all seen, which just shows the relationship between transport energy and urban density, which just proves the point, really, that very low densities uh, end up having very, very high car use, very high car use per, per capita. Hong Kong, right down here, only has 50, 50 cars per thousand of population, whereas you go up here, you've probably got, um, you know, uh, up in America, you've probably got 1,500 cars per thousand population or something. The other big issue, of course, is that oil and gas are going to run out. Um, we don't quite know when, of course, because supply-demand issues are very complex, but essentially we're heading into a world where certainly beyond 2050 we have to fashion ourselves to, to, to be living in cities without a dependency on oil and gas. Most people would agree with that. And therefore, actually, at Copenhagen, one of the big drivers that means we will get an agreement is that realisation means that everybody's looking for a different energy scenario and most of those energy scenarios are non-fossil fuel, um, apart from coal, which I'll come to in a minute. Uh, but particularly for transport, um, people are looking at alternatives. Coal will be one of the most fundamental uh, power sources probably for another 200 years. There's enough coal on the planet to keep coal-fired power stations going for about two to 300 years. So actually, we've got to come to terms with carbon capture, which I'll come back to in a minute, 
But also, of course, as, as pressure on those reserves grows, we will find coal prices going up. So another really important part of the infrastructure changes in cities is actually that we've got to recognize that at the moment in coal-fired power stations, we waste about 55% of that precious energy immediately in heat before we actually get in electricity. So we've got to take that waste heat and put it back into the city system as a, as a, as a heat network. And that now is a very clear understanding if we're going to actually manage ourselves towards this solution. But the real solution for energy does lie in renewable sources. Um, at this point, I have to say that nuclear will be an intermediate transition technology because eventually uranium will run out. Somebody told me the other day that thorium will take over. I don't know much about thorium, but I think thorium will extend it. But nevertheless, it isn't a sustainable technology because it relies on non-renewable resources. So essentially, renewable resources are going to be very important. And the most important learning here is that concentrated solar power in deserts is now reckoned since I started this lecture is now talk, talked about by everyone as a, as a key solution to this problem. Not solar, solar panels in cities, but concentrated solar power in deserts will provide a huge chunk of the solution and projects are happening all over the world. When I went to Egypt and did the presentation there and looked at the GDP of Egypt and looked at their energy situation, they're already exporting gas to Europe, which I must admit I didn't know. And, and I did also didn't know that Israel uses a huge amount of gas from Egypt, which I also find quite extraordinary. Um, but basically, Egypt signed an agreement with the EU in December last year to, to create an energy network between Egypt and Europe. And this Angela Merkel and Siemens are behind this, and they're planning to build very large concentrated solar power plants in, 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 in Egypt. And in Egypt, you'd only need 7% of the desert fringe to create all of the power needed to power Europe. Um, so it gives you some idea of the, of the capability of concentrated solar power to deliver the energy needs. So the main message here is energy really isn't a problem. We've just got to collect it from the sun and get it to where cities need it, which is not a trivial problem. But if we treat deserts like we did with a North Sea oil wells and we start going in there technologically to say, you know, we're going to harvest energy in these places and take it to where we need it, then I think we'll begin to get the right answer. And that process has already started. As you'll know from Barack Obama's um, uh, approach in North America, uh, they're now planning to build huge concentrated solar power plants right across the southwest of uh, uh, the states. Very large um, wind power plants in the southeast and the north and again, uh, the U.S. could run on renewables. Uh, India is planning the same thing. In fact, it, India is planning to build solar cities now, or, uh, right across India. And that's one of the reasons why India has come out with a much more positive approach to the climate summit recently, because they, they actually believe they can exploit concentrated solar power in, in India. Australia is a place that's actually got more energy. It could probably power the whole world, actually, if, if Australia wanted to. Um, it's, got, it's got solar, it's got wind, it's got biomass, and it's got geothermal. Um, and uh, therefore, there is a, a huge opportunity for Australia to continue to export uh, energy to the rest of the world. Um, technologically, there are ways to do that. New Zealand, uh, when I went to New Zealand, that was the most difficult presentation on, on sustaining the economics because of their dependency on fossil fuels for uh, driving around New Zealand with a very, very low population density, about 10 people per square kilometre. 
but also the fact that they bring uh, phosphates in to grow food and they take the food out again. Their whole economy depends on fossil fuels. So it's really difficult. New Zealand wants to move to renewable energy, but the renewable energy plants, the windmills, will be so dispersed that you won't be able to afford to build a grid. So the obvious thing is to convert it into hydrogen through hydrolysis and then use the hydrogen as a fuel for cars. Now, did you know that all the cars in New Zealand come from second-hand cars in Japan? I didn't actually know that, but apparently they do. And, and therefore, if, if Japan moves to hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, they'll go to New Zealand, and New Zealand will be in the right place with its energy systems. So now we come to cities and transport. And this slide um, really tells you a lot about the economics of cities and transport because if we drive in cars in cities the amount of road space that's taken up which is a very significant proportion of the land area uh, is taken up by a uh, rather wasted and polluting system uh, if one has public transport even buses on the surface uh, or walking and cycling you can see the amount of land space to move the same number of people is very much less that's an economic issue now China has just done what I think is the most extraordinary study the world has ever done on studying cities and the whole issue of energy security, uh, renewable energy supply, um, carbon emissions, uh, urban design, uh, vehicle technology, um, economics and environment. And it, it's had professors from all those different departments looking at what is a sustainable urban model for transport in cities in China up to 2050. And these are some very brief headlines of this report. Um, and this is the, the Chinese scientific approach to sustainable development at play. First of all, city development should be public transport led. Not very surprising to us, but actually a really big surprise in China because currently they've been following the American model that everything's car led. Secondly, electric traction, mass transit systems are really the answer for cities, not even buses. They actually say in the report, buses take up too much land, put the put the mass transit underground, and intercity high-speed rail running on renewable energy, and you'll see, if you don't know, they're rolling out the most extraordinary network of high-speed trains at this very moment, which is going to be completed in about uh, 10 years' time. Then they're going to say, in, in order to avoid oil imports, they're going to say, we're going to start producing ethanol from our coal supplies, uh, we're going to capture the carbon in that process, and then the ethanol is going to be used as a fuel for cars up until a point when we can have a transition to electric vehicles. And they are saying, we estimate that electric vehicles will replace the whole fleet by 2050, is what they say in this analysis. Which I think probably the rate of change at the moment seems quite likely. So maybe in China one can imagine in 2050 quiet, clean vehicles in streets and different ventilation models for buildings. Now, in developing countries, the first thing they want are scooters. They don't go just, just to cars. We didn't either. But the first thing you want is a scooter when you're down at this level of um, car ownership. And a wonderful story from India that I discovered in presenting there is that electric scooters are now being made and, and marketed all over India. And the marketing model is to build a little tea kiosk in the city and anyone who's bought one of these scooters can go and plug it into the side of the kiosk while you get a cup of tea and you get a rapid charge for your scooter and you see the advertisements around the side of the kiosk. You know, it's, it's just like the Velib cycle model but for scooters. Just brilliant. So have, have heart and hope that people are now inventing these great 
commercial business models all over the world to drive this type of transition forward. And we know, of course, that both for vehicles, uh, goods delivery, and for cars, electric is really coming very fast. Mo most major manufacturers are now saying they're going to have a full range of vehicles available for purchase uh, within about two or three years. And the great thing about electric vehicles is they can store renewable energy to a limited extent in the batteries, um, but also the, the amount of energy consumption is much lower. And if you have a charging regime which charges off peak, then actually the overall energy supply in the whole power system is not a great deal higher, despite the fact you've got a huge amount of ele extra electric uh, power going into the system. So for all those reasons, uh, electric cars are very attractive, much lower running costs, but of course you've got the battery maintenance issue. Now, in terms of um, cities, the environment and economics, this for me is the most inspiring story of all. I did my presentation in Seoul, and the person who hosted me in Seoul was the person responsible for this project. This is taking out the highway out of the centre of Seoul and replacing it with a river that used to be there in the first place. Now this project is done for economic reasons. This project, the government have measured the economic benefits coming from this project, and they have completely been positive in every sense. Uh, tourism's being attractive, the local shopkeepers, the local, um, everyone's doing well out of this. Nobody is complaining about the traffic issues. Um, not a great deal was done in putting extra public transport in the city. Uh, obviously some was, but not a, not a great deal was done. And uh, this is a really inspiring project because this tells us what we already know. Enrique Pendeloza goes around telling anyone who will listen to him that don't put cars into cities. You know, you know everyone's trying to take them out now, so, so find a model that actually minimizes the amount of car use. And also having things like consolidation centers for freight where you can get freight delivered to, to consolidation centers around the edge of the city and then deliver freight in an organized way, just like we used to, street by street, with, with clean vehicles. Now, before I come onto the videos, I just want to talk about food, because we cannot find a solution to sustainable living in cities unless we find a solution to the rural economics, the, the, the issues of climate change impacts on food production. This is a graph that shows the amount of food being produced per capita, uh, on average, across the world each year. And we're now in a situation where food production per capita is in decline, and this has been declining for some time. So the UN reserves of food have gone down really dramatically. So we're in a really difficult position now. We don't have much resilience for disasters of the sort that are now in unfolding in Kenya at the moment. So we have to do something about that. And one of the obvious problems that comes from that sort of issue is that food prices start going up. And these are the increases in a year up to, up to November last year. Um, they were a bit extreme, but nevertheless, they haven't really gone down that much. So what happens is, in countries around the world where people spend 60, 70 percent of their income on food, when food prices go up by 50 to 100 percent, uh, millions of people start to starve. And that's what's happened in the last two or three years. There are millions of people now starving because of that fundamental problem of the world's inability to actually grow enough food for a rising population. So urban development has to actually address that issue um, in a big way. And the project that, that Ricky, um, I, I think, may have mentioned earlier on, the Wangshuang project in China, was a project in a very, very dry and difficult area in northeast China, 
where we were going to expand and develop existing villages into, into larger mixed-use communities and where we wanted to retain enough farming production between those settlements. And what we discovered, we could actually take the, the, the grey water from the urban developments and use it to irrigate the farmland between those developments and actually balance up the resources and nutrient management and thereby provide those farmers who are struggling on that land at the moment with a reliable source of water and nutrients to grow their food and therefore lift the rural economy as well as growing the urban economy. And that is a really, really important point. And therefore, water management and food production, I think, will tend to be a very, very strong influence in some parts of the world on the urban forms that will emerge uh, from a sustainability standpoint, which is a very, very different way of looking at urban development. Also, it will be possible to use hydroponics and, and intensive food growing within urban settlements on rooftops and within the settlements um, because there you can use recycled water, you can use nutrients from the waste streams to actually grow food locally within the community and create jobs from it. And one of the most amazing things that's happened again in the life of this lecture tour is that the demand for local food in cities all over the world is quite a phenomenon now. But, you know, it was, you know, three years ago everyone wanted organic food. Now everybody wants local food and organic food's gone right down. So actually this becomes a really important part of the driver of economics and, and demand. Water availability will be affected by climate change and in the end water availability should be linked to energy because if we have enough energy, if we're bringing solar power from deserts, it's going to be possible to desalinate water in areas that, that, are, that need water at the moment. So actually technologically and, and actually from a pricing point of view, it's not actually a problem to solve it's just that from an infrastructure point of view, we just haven't got our heads around that type of solution. So I, I fundamentally believe we can solve the water supply problems uh, as time goes by if we've got enough energy. So finally, almost well, penultimately before I go on to show you the videos, I now just want to cover uh, waste uh, materials um, and using local resources. And this really nettly problem of what do we do about carbon dioxide from coal-fired power stations now, all of the evidence that I can gather out there at the moment is that nobody really believes that carbon capture and storage will ever be affordable or deliverable at any major scale. The political statements that you hear are all that this is the solution, but on the ground, I still haven't found anyone who's very confident about this. So in Arup, we've been looking at an alternative um, idea of taking carbon dioxide, putting it through plant growers, which is something that we know can be done, to grow algae, to then put those algae through anaerobic digesters, put them through a bacterial process that then produces compost and nutrients and will enable us to take that compost back to improve food production on the land. Now this is technologically possible, but the big problem with it, of course there's a big problem with everything, is you need loads of energy to do that. You need more energy to separate the carbon and oxygen out in this process than, than was created in bringing them together in the first place. So in theory, you need more energy to do this than was created by the power station. But you'll remember, hopefully, that 55% of the energy of the power station is wasted in heat, which can be brought to bear on the question. You can take all the energy from waste in the city to the power station. You can get solar power um, uh, from photovoltaics and other means you can have wind power. And we've done some analysis of cities and we reckon it's possible to get enough energy collected together to enable us to capture a very high proportion of carbon dioxide at coal-fired power stations through this process. 
And interestingly now, another development I read about at the weekend is that the, in America where they've been testing the use of, of uh, algae to produce jet fuels for aircraft, they have now managed to produce a jet fuel from algae which is precisely the specification that the aircraft industry uses. But they have now managed to convert algae grown in this type of process into jet fuel. Now I've done a calculation especially for you tonight because um, um, I thought this would be interesting is that if you, take, if you look at all the carbon dioxide coming out of all the world's coal-fired power stations and you look at all of the jet fuel that we need to run all of the aircraft at the moment, the amount of carbon dioxide you would need to grow that algae is about 10% of all the emissions from the world's coal-fired power stations. So actually it's sort of the right sort of number. So there is now the prospect that instead of putting the carbon dioxide straight into the atmosphere, it can go through our aircraft into the atmosphere, which doesn't get us very far other than the fact we're saving all of that fossil fuel stuff that's there at the moment. So it's a big chunk of reduction and will probably make people flying feel a lot better. So it could well be part of this uh, solution. And I say all these things really just so you realize that these things are moving really, really quickly now. So all of us have to have, be very flexible in the way we look at the world and the way you look at cities because everything you thought before could change in the next 10 to 15 years. We also have to have all of our materials, that's all of our goods, our laptops, our mobile phones, our stuff has to start being re coming from renewable resources. At the end of the life, it has to be reused and remanufactured. We have the policies for doing that in Europe, and increasingly, we're heading in that direction. Now, coming back to cities, uh, when I was in Cairo doing the presentation there, uh, I, I learned about the Zabaline waste recycling teams, who are uh, people in, in Cairo, uh, not very wealthy people, very poor people, who have the most amazingly sophisticated waste management system in Cairo that ends up with the organic waste being fed to pigs and the pigs then being eaten. And you'll probably know that the flu academic that's now running around the world, the swine flu, means that all of those pigs have now been killed, which is absolutely awful because it's completely interrupted this wonderful uh, sustainable system. But it just illustrates the fact that you can never be sure that one particular sustainable system will actually be sustainable when something else comes along. But Herbert Giraudet said that apparently they tried to privatize this system and actually found that you couldn't possibly ever do it, you know, privatized in anything like such an efficient way. Then coming on to building stuff, building buildings and, and, and so on, we have to design buildings so they can be recycled and reconditioned and reused and refurbished. And uh, on my travels, I, I know John Ostendorf really well, a, a professor at MIT um, in, in Boston, and he is doing the most fabulous projects in Africa using local materials, using compressed blocks, and building the most beautiful uh, dome and other structures using local labor who are trained to do this. So in the vision for the developing world, in the, in, in the vision for sustainable cities, this has to be part of it, using local materials and fashioning beautiful, uh, sustainable ways of living in these places without corrugated tin and all those things that, that are being used at the moment. The other part of this story is obviously recycling human waste and the obvious and, 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 and great way of doing this is to take human waste and, and biomass waste to digest it in anaerobic digesters which can be part of the algae solution I showed you earlier. And this is the Hammerby development in Stockholm where this has been done for a community of 20,000 people uh, and the gas that comes out of the digesters is being used as a cooking gas and also to drive vehicles in Stockholm. And everybody loves it. And they're now going to build a much more ambitious, um, larger project, uh, which is even more ambitious than this one, 
So this really is being done uh, in sophisticated cities and really works. And the final bit of the story, uh, before I show the four videos, is running on information. There is a huge amount of low-hanging fruit in cities in enabling to the work in a much more sustainable way uh, by combining what we are now calling urban information architecture, by taking the information system in buildings, the 3D, the 4D, the virtual reality, and all of that stuff, combining it with the infrastructure information and data and real-time information, and putting in a management system where real-time feedback happens in cities to enable people to choose, all of us, to choose much more sustainable options because we have that information on our, on our mobile devices. And this is, this is a here and now idea that can really dramatically change. You know, real-time journey planning in London so you know that you can go from here to here because those vehicles will actually be there as opposed to uh, timetables. So to finish off, I'm now going to show you what all this looks like when you bring it together into trying to vision our way forward. So I'm going to start with the low to middle income countries and the two paradigms that are required here. One is the, uh, what are the new developments going to be like and the second one is what do we do about the informal settlements. And you've got to remember that in 2050, probably 80% of the population in the world will be those currently living in low, in low to middle income countries. So basically this story is the biggest story in relation to the future of cities in my view. So the first thing is that it is possible to envisage that a city like Delhi for example has a very low ecological footprint around two hectares per person about the global earth share could drift towards a one and a half hectare per capita footprint and we've done the analysis and I presented this in, in Delhi and I'm not going to go through that in detail. But what I'm going to do now is show you a very short video of the Dongtang Eco City project in China which is a, a, a project uh, designed to give a low footprint living condition entirely running on renewable energy and the development uh, concept of three villages, about 20,000 people in each village with social services at the centre of each village and a mixed use community uh, facilities at the centre of each village with very green landscaped areas, green roofs with a sort of urban density where um, you can have parks and green spaces which as you've seen earlier is okay from a transport point of view. Uh, water management, very important flooding management, water management so you can recycle all the water and then accessibility, good public transport with stops that enable people to walk to a bus stop from residential offices, uh, sorry, residential properties and from office buildings. And then social infrastructure, as I said, positioned in each village uh, area, uh, part of the city, so that they're accessible. And then the, the, the renewable energy infrastructure, which in this place, in this case, was rice husks, waste rice husks, uh, running combined heat and power plants, large scale wind turbines, photovoltaic panels, and energy from waste and that provided enough electricity to also power all the electric cars which were specified for the city as well and the buildings designed for about 70% less energy than buildings currently in Shanghai. So, so we, we know the metrics of what's possible. As Ricky said, none of these have been built yet in China and I can happy to talk about why that is um, because there are very uh, good reasons why. Um, but let's go on and look at um, informal settlements, slums, where currently 60 to 70% of people are living in African and southern Asian cities. How do you start uh, taking this area of a city to be a sustainable community? 
Well, the very first and important issue is getting the issue of land tenure sorted out for these people. Because once some form of land right, which, can own, which could be simply a lease arrangement, happens, and, and then there is a process that they can start raising some capital through microfinance against that land right. And that then enables them to engage in a partnership in a community with private sector, with public sector, to start putting a little bit of money into improving infrastructure and services and to be involved in designing and steering that process. Now, this isn't fantasy. This has been done, this has been proven and tested in a number of cities in India and Bangladesh, and it really works. So once that process starts, there is empowerment, there is involvement, and uh, you know, pride and sense of place all starts to evolve out of that. One of the most important things about this is this issue of participatory planning. And as I said earlier on, um, in order to fashion a future where there is a fair distribution of resources, it does seem that community involvement in planning is going to be really important, whether we're retrofitting here or developing cities there. So the first thing that happens generally in this sort of situation is that um, uh, the, the, the hard wiring starts to happen. So water, energy, waste systems, transport systems start to be put into place. And uh, once that begins, then what has then, we know from experience is that once those conditions improve, people then start to invest in their own houses. Jobs are created through this process. People then start to improve their own homes. And of course the footprint, as we know from uh, research, the footprint of these cities is quite good from a density point of view and therefore you can fashion a sustainable future out of it. So in this video now you see just a, some simple uh, examples of the sort of interventions that can then be made which actually come from, from real examples. First of all the, the, the water supply, the drainage systems, the water treatment systems uh, all being funded partly by community involvement then the roads connecting into the rest of the city so connections happen, public transport starts to come into the area instead of just being available on the edge. Uh, and um, uh, bus stops in place, landscape, open areas can start being landscaped because there's enough money to pay for it. And so generally speaking you can actually get a real change to happen. And then finally there's just a, some images here of taking this area to an ecological age condition uh, in which um, existing buildings may be um, improved and retained, um, uh, public spaces put in place, um, green roofs put in to actually cool the place down, shopping areas actually uh, put in place for, for creating jobs uh, and new public spaces created uh, and so on. So this really works. This actually will fashion an ecological age paradigm because there isn't a massive change in ecological footprint but of course um, social and economic conditions are transformed. So now we go to our world here and, and, and basically here we're talking about you know, the evidence base for this comes from climate change action plans in a number of cities around the world and real examples of retrofitting from, from Freiburg, from Malmo, from Hanover, Vancouver, the sort of things that I'm sure Ricky talks about uh, a lot. Um, we, this is the, 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 the type of ecological uh, footprint reduction that can be achieved by retrofitting cities. I don't know whether you know, but Wales has actually got a national policy to reduce its footprint now uh, and is fashioning uh, retrofit programs to, to do that. Uh, so so the, these are now becoming part of national policy. 
So this video that some of you may have seen already is retrofitting the centre of Manchester. So this is a downtown area of a city taking it to an ecological age condition by investments that could be financed from returns on, on out of the resource efficiency. Um, the first thing is that if high-speed rail has come into Piccadilly Station and additional public transport then connects up, the first thing, logical thing is to increase the density of development around that transport node with mixed-use development bringing more people into the city um, which, which enables the public transport to be viable. Put, as the public transport is put in, putting more trees in the streets to cool the place down to avoid heat island effects as temperatures increase to collect energy on the sides of buildings from photovoltaics or, or algae screens, which are, we believe increasingly will be possible for collecting uh, energy and turning it into energy in the city. Growing plants up the sides of buildings to cool them down because facades have a big impact on heat island effects. Photovoltaics will be available at the sort of prices you can do this within about three or four years now. Growing food on the tops of buildings is actually a commercial proposition and does provide a lot of the green roof effect but actually provides commercial um, opportunities. It's, it's now being done in New York uh, as a commercial proposition. So that combination uh, you can see starts to enable a city to start feeling uh, and looking differently. And with your PDA you can find out when the bus is actually going to arrive at the bus stop so you can turn up just in time uh, which will be great for old people, for disabled people, for young people uh, going to school and buildings increasingly might be able to feed energy into the grid rather than consume it, which means that people might want to be very proud of that and advertise the fact on the outside of their buildings. So that will achieve the ecological age conditions that I've talked about and, and is a place that I think we can envisage going in, in the developed world. But what do we do about the suburbs in North America as the final pièce de résistance? I couldn't go to North America and talk about this without suggesting what could be done. So the first thing that can be done is that uh, these houses are so wasteful that it's possible to get a pension fund to come in and actually fund the retrofitting of all the homes in an area and, and get a share from a green lease out of the output. So first the buildings could be tackled on a very large scale uh, by putting in uh, energy efficiency insulation, photovoltaics, natural ventilation and so on. The second thing, all of this space could be turned into food growing areas and this is a bit cheeky, but in principle, therefore, you know, garages could be turned into grocery stores and, 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 and jobs, jobs could be created. Um, I don't think it would happen quite like that, but you get the idea. Um, and by capturing water, you, you can actually do that. And of course, there is a real demand for local food. And then we come on to the social implications. Um, in, in the London Sustainable Development Commission, we concluded that the thing you could do tomorrow to make the biggest difference to your carbon emissions is to invite your elderly parents to live with you. And, and I genuinely believe in a carbon-constrained world, we will want our families to live closer together. We will want our friends maybe to live closer together. And therefore, people will extend their buildings and the urban density will tend to go up in desirable suburbs but go down in others. And therefore, you'll have a greater social mix, we think, and, and better social support conditions. Then, of course, you can imagine the 4x4s disappearing. You can imagine electric vehicles in car clubs being plugged into uh, posts and street with the option of having public transport with wheelchair-friendly access. And I'll tell you in a minute how this can be made to work from a, an economics point of view. Uh, so um, accessibility could be completely changed, including pedestrian and bike lanes and, and walking facilities. 
And then we have some fairly technical things. It is possible with these huge areas of tarmac in North America, which get very hot in the sun, to put in pipes that can convert the heat into cooling in the buildings either side. The Dutch are doing this very successfully. Then you can imagine with the increased biodiversity, with the food production, um, that this might be a place you might even want to sit in the street in a sub suburb of North America. Yet, let alone walk, you might even want to sit down and enjoy the environment. Um, I get into trouble actually when I say that some places because people say our suburbs are already like that. But, um, so the, the, the final bit of the story of course is how do you make this work from an economic and investment point of view? Well, well the idea is basically you take the grid of streets, you put public transport into a selection of streets at the nodes you then put in some very high density interventions at those transport nodes um, uh, which then provides the extra population that can then help to drive the public transport for everybody without changing the character uh, tremendously. You can put in all the other things I've mentioned, walking and cycling routes, energy systems, um, and smart information systems. And we've done the analysis. That does reduce carbon emissions by 80%. It genuinely does, as long as there is a change in the grid to a much lower carbon grid at the same time, which is what uh, North America is now actually planning. So all of this leads to uh, COP15 uh, in December, and um, I'm going to be there giving this presentation at three, three events now, which uh, hopefully will be attended by some of the delegates. And uh, one of the events we're running there is an event called Culture Futures, where we're bringing the world's uh, culture and arts community together with this vision to say, can you help us with the cultural change dimension? And so we're probably going to run the only... Uh, arts and culture event uh, at COP15 where hopefully we'll engage the, uh, that community to help us. These are the organisations that help peer review my paper. If you want to read the, the peer reviewed paper which doesn't contain a lot of the lessons on the road because it was written beforehand but it is 80,000 words it's got 200 references in it that gives a lot of the evidence base for the presentation um, you're, you're, you're extremely welcome and thank you for your time. lectures in one, I'm not sure, but <laughs> and probably you're the only person we can uh, forgive uh, your ecological carbon footprint because you bring such a positive message. Right? So, I mean, I've, one gets um, worried that you get the Al Gore uh, depressing uh, moment when you talk about uh, the environmental problem. And I have to say, Peter, you've given us... Uh, uh, a range of so, so many positive examples from all corners of the world which totally and utterly surprised me in a very positive way. So Fran, I think there are at least ten lectures here that we need to uh, get uh, uh, our students collectively to be involved in. But uh, we, uh, you happily have talked a long time. Yes. And I mean that. That's very good news. But I'm sure there are um, some questions. We've got about 10-15 minutes maximum before we have to wind up. So let me uh, open up before there's a microphone coming around, tell us who you are and um, don't give a lecture. So one right here at the front. Just put up your hand so we can see if there are other questions. Hi, good day. It's James Watson here. I just wanted to ask about the role of uh, governments and regulators as well as the role of citizens in these visions that you, you portray. What can 
us as individuals do uh, versus what can the government drive us to do? Gosh. <laughs> That's not, it's not an easy question to answer in a soundbite, um, which I think is probably all we've got. Um, I, th I think the, 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 the best way of answering it is all of the lessons I've learned from this so far, all the examples of best practice are to do with leadership. So actually leadership's really fundamental, whether it's at a national government level, to city level, to community level, within private sector, public sector, leaders make the difference. All the examples of change, I'm sure Ricky knows this, all the, the people who have made a real difference in the world are, are leading personally. And I, so I think that's number one. So if you want to make a difference, stand up and lead. The, the other really important thing I think we've learned from the London Sustainable Development Commission is the best way of using stimulus money is to find potential leaders in communities and actually feed them some money and some profile and, and so on and help them to, to help support change because that helps both politically and technically in every which way. So I think making a connection between limited amounts of money between the top and the bottom in a way that stimulates energy. I, th I think that there's, we all know there's tremendous energy all over the world to make this stuff happen actually. There's hardly anyone I meet who says, we don't want to, you know, we want to do this. But everyone says we can't because there are too many blockages. So I think what it is, is connecting up the energies, actually getting people to work together to start visioning and then driving towards it. And I think anyone who thinks you can do this on your own is wrong. But actually, if you can find some friends and, and communities and, and, and wider communities that can work together, join them up. So you know, social networking and all that sort of thing, I think it's going to be really important. And is Boris Johnson leading? <laughs> Can this be an unofficial concept? Of course, no. Um, intimate, intimate group. Well, I mean, uh, ba basically I would say that uh, Ken Livingston blew up a, a balloon very, very powerfully to be a very impressive leadership position in the world, and that balloon was pricked when Boris came in, and it's gradually deflating. <laughs> Other questions? It, it hasn't gone down yet. Other questions? Right in the middle there. Chris. Wait, one microphone so everyone can hear you. I'm Chris Panfell, I'm an architect, and my, my Does question... Does that make any difference? Speak. Try again. All right. Can you hear me now? Yeah. yeah, all right. I'm Chris Panfell, I'm an architect and an urbanist. My question concerns China and uh, Dongtan and what happened there. Why is it not moving ahead? It seemed like such a promising idea, such a promising uh, moment of leadership. It, it's an impossible question to answer because you know, in China you don't get an answer to that sort of question. But, but what I can tell you is that the reason why eco-cities are not being built, and it's nothing to do with Dongtang, this is across the whole country, is, is a very important issue that we're facing here as well, which is that going from a performance a totally different performance base to deliver a technical solution requires building control, detailed specifications to meet rule books. And the rule books in China for delivering very, very fast, you know, efficient ways are very, very strict about what you can do. Everyone's in silos, they have their own rule book and this is what you do. A road in an urban development in China is specified to be a certain width, a certain diameter of sewer pipe in a certain place, a water pipe in a certain place. It's a standard specification in Shanghai. You know, we're not talking about that sort of outcome. So in reality, delivering this on the ground requires all of that to change. And we've got the same problem with building control and planning issues here as well. 
We're not really facing up to that. We should be facing up to it. We should be training people. We should be really getting to grips with that issue. So actually, that is the problem. And China, of course, you know, won't say that's the problem because they, they're, but they are, they're running a mayor's training program in China. They're running training programs at all levels. They're beginning to start changing specifications. There's all this wonderful research going on to give the evidence base for the change. And it's scientific and it's very rigorous. But it will happen. All these projects will happen, in my view. But we've got to wait while they sort those issues out. It was very encouraging to see your summary of the report on uh, yeah. Chinese yeah. Uh, public transport. In fact, uh, encouraging and incredibly surprising. Yeah. Uh, and I think that goes against the grain of what many of us think. I, I would ask you again on China, but you know, this could apply to many of the other um, cities that certainly we have been studying and that you know well. Do you feel as optimistic about what the private sector is doing, uh, which after all builds what, 70, 80, 90 percent of uh, the built fabric of, of um, our cities today and will continue to do so. Do you feel as optimistic that um, the short-term commercial returns necessary for any uh, uh, built project will allow some of the really um, longer-term commitments that you're seeing from uh, some of the political leaders? Eventually, yes. The, the, the problem, again, we're facing is this sort of learning curve issue. Um, we know from evidence around the world um, that there are two issues. One is scale. These things have to be done at a big scale, so you, you can't implement change at a building scale or even, a, or even an EBS fleet development scale. You know, you've got to, this, this scale of change has got to happen much broader than that for it to work. We know from evidence on green buildings in America, and I'm sure you know this, that but actually the, you know, the, the cost premiums come down really quickly as, as the scale has increased. So I, I, think, I think we will get to a point where that's okay, but the whole issue of the resource efficiency savings and how that funds back into the infrastructure is a different issue. And, and basically we have to have funding models that separate real estate development from the sustainable infrastructure. And the sustainable development infrastructure has to be delivered by pension funds, long-term funding sources, but actually develop that at reasonable scale, and, and they all want to do so that. So not subsidised, but, no, but, but a different mechanism. vehicle. And that's the bit that we haven't figured out, because that's a disconnection between the way we're thinking at the moment. But I think London's experience has realised that we have to go with the, the sustainable infrastructure, energy, water and waste, has to be at a much bigger scale, and probably financed by pension funds, probably as part of a sort of regional retrofit proposal where you retrofit buildings, you put in the sustainable infrastructure, you change the streets, you, you, you create better, better placemaking within that area, all as a package funded by pension funds and some, some public and private money. Thank you. Other questions? Way up at the top over there? One, one on that side and then another one over there. Hi, um, my name's Henrietta Lynch. I'm from UCL, but I previously worked in uh, consultancy and in consultancy I worked on some large-scale energy infrastructure projects within London and it seems to be that whilst uh, I mean a lot of the things that you are showing uh, uh, as ideas are technically extremely feasible the uh, major barriers seem to be the uh, perhaps the legal and planning and ownership logistics you're talking about and if you're trying to link large-scale frameworks whatever of nature they are between developments and different people actually transgressing the uh, boundaries of mm -hmm. ownership particularly is, is a really really big issue 
Yeah, well, I, I actually had six Texan senators in my office about a year ago who said to me, we can't do anything about water management in Texas because the underground water system is managed by one set of laws and the above ground water is managed by a different set of laws and by different state jurisdictions. And they said that's an example of how, how we can't do anything in America. So I gave them sort of two-barrel shotgun of how, what I thought about Texas generally in terms of its uh, resource efficiency. And I said it isn't a problem because if you have a model that, that, that actually sets up a factor four or five improvement in efficiency, everybody wins. It really is like that. So what you do is you have a model that, that looks at this on a large scale. You show everyone the wins, and they all then sign up to, to, to do it. And you, you, you then have contracts across the interfaces. It really isn't difficult. Uh, the, the realization is that we just haven't got to the idea that placemaking, resource efficiency, uh, higher uh, standards of living can all go together. You know, that's the, that's the bit we've got to realize, that this isn't a win-lose game. As I told you a moment ago, we were only your comments about politics, and particularly in London, were extremely intimate, and no one here would ever talk about that. And I think I can see Nicky Gavron, who was the deputy mayor under Ken Livingston, and uh, got the thumbs up. Nicky, yes. I think you have a question. I couldn't possibly comment on what you said, Peter. <laughs> anyway, um, I just wanted to ask. What mileage do you think there is? I mean, I just listened to the previous question and what's come up several times are the barriers. And I'm beginning to think now that unless we have, you know, bite the bullets and have proactive mandatory legislation, regulation for the utilities, they won't change their business model. And I, I listened to what you said about the pension funds and so on, but surely we should be allowing, opening up some competition, allowing third-party generators to come in, and, but looking at water and energy particularly as being rewarded for saving, not being in the sense as they are now, um, you know, their whole model is to encourage you to consume more, and have some regulation which allows for that to happen. And you could then have, you could then have a neighborhood approach to energy, waste, and water as you've been talking about so eloquently, but it would, it, would, it would come naturally if you had the legislation. No, Rather like, I mean, the example I always give is of the smokeless zones in the, um, you know, in the reaction to the smog and so on. Um, you could go zone by zone, neighborhood by neighborhood, throughout this country yeah. and train, but, but, change the water waste and energy. No, of course, Nikki, and you know, you know I agree with you because uh, we talked about it many times. Um, but I, but, I'm beginning to think that's the way forward. I, we just I agree got to get with you, it through. But, a, but actually, we are trying to fashion some demonstrated projects at the moment, really, you know, in a very detailed way. And it does appear you can actually, and it's not desirable to do so. But we could do a demonstrate it, with, you know, outside the regulated utility. I think, you know, I think there's, if you do this on a big enough scale, you can create your own community interest, Musco, you know, outside the regulated utility, actually, to do this. So. That, that's a, but that's not the ideal solution. That's, yes, it's those demonstrations which will give courage to the politicians, but we haven't got time, really, to wait for them to get no, courage. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. We need to sort that out. Time for one last question. Over there. Gentleman over there. Hi there. I just want to thank you for your very interesting uh, lecture there. Um, my question's about, you talked about sort of renewable energy 
Um, but we're t- still talking about sort of cities made of steel and concrete. You know, what, under, especially coming from Arab, whether they're sort of doing research in new materials and whether there are sort of new renewable materials coming along. Just your sort of thoughts on that. Yeah, thank, thanks for that. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge amount of progress being made on that. And certainly in the Dongchang EcoCity metrics, we included the construction of the city within the ecological footprint calculation. And to get the footprint down to about 2.5 hectares per person, we had to, what, what you do in that calculation is you take the total uh, footprint of all the materials and you divide it by the lifetime of, the, of those elements. So you divide by the lifetime. And we did have to come up with some quite interesting scenarios to, to, you know, to actually affect things. It wasn't too draconian. You could still use steel and concrete, but you had to use steel from recycled resources and so on and so forth. So you know, Brit- British steel as was, um, you know, still make steel out of raw materials, whereas most other steel producers are, are using recycled steel. So you know, those sorts of issues start to become important. So you're absolutely right. And obviously the example I showed in South Africa is really the future, I think, for, for developing countries to start using local materials more and fashioning earthquake resistant and you know, all the other things we need, but in a, in a much more beautiful and, and, and using local resources. Peter, let me conclude by asking you one question. We, we start, as we heard from Richard, that one of the speakers in the series will be uh, the mayor of Copenhagen. Uh, she will probably be speaking here in about six months, so that will be three, four months after the Copenhagen event. What are the three things you'd like her to come and tell us that were agreed at Copenhagen, which do you think are not on the agenda yet? Well, I I think number one is the issue of cities. I mean, uh, um, you know, the the, the disconnect that we have between negotiators in this very sort of ethereal, technical negotiation and the real issue of delivering this change in cities is a terrible disconnection. So that has to be number one, and hopefully the, the meeting that is being chaired by the Mayor of Copenhagen will be an important event in that respect. So how many things did you want? Three. Three, okay. That, that, that's, that's number one. Um, I think number two is a greater realisation. I met the negotiating team from China last week, and um, they said that if only people in America... you know, the the people who are thinking about this in in the Senate in in America would realize that this is an issue that's about resource efficiency, it's about uh, a a better economic model, it's about stopping pollution, uh, and it's about raising human development. That's what we're negotiating for as far as China's concerned. If only the American people would would frame the argument in that way, they they said there wouldn't be a problem. And and there is a growing realization that we shouldn't be talk, just talking about carbon emissions. We should be talking about all the things I've talked about. So that, w- that would be in our, my number two. You know, the realization, oh my God, yeah, of course, you know, this isn't an issue that's in isolation from all the other things. And I think the third thing, which I think is really important, which sort of could come but probably won't, is the whole issue of funding for adaptation. Um, I know that the G77 negotiator um, is negotiating for a one and a half degree for enough emissions reduction to get to the one and a half degree increase only because of the absolutely devastating impact this, what two degrees would have on, on the developing world. Catastrophic events will happen and, and therefore uh, a real momentum of this ethical issue of funding to, to protect people's lives in developing countries for me is really, really important. 
Thank you very much for that. I, I think one of the things we would hope that Copenhagen at least starts to do is also to talk about the key issue that Richard said, mentioned right at the beginning, which is interdisciplinary education. Because I think unless people in different um, positions of leadership or action within the whole city uh, uh, making process can begin to uh, look across, it's very unlikely that we'll achieve any of the things we've said. Um, I now want to really conclude by clearly thanking the Over Arab Foundation for uh, supporting the series and uh, allowing, as it happens, a very distinguished member of your firm to speak. Um, I only just noticed what a beautiful logo you have. It's very nice, Over Arab. Um, I want to thank Peter, and I'm sure you will all join me in a moment for, I mean, if you've given this lecture 30 times in 30 cities, boy, you're doing well. Uh, and uh, you're have an enthusiasm and a clarity uh, of message which I think is incredibly important. So uh, I'd also like to thank the team at the LSE, Adam Kaz in particular, for organizing the event and look forward to seeing you all at many of the other lectures organized by the city's program, Fran Tonkis, uh, ourselves and others at the LSE on these issues. But please uh, thank Peter with me for this wonderful talk.